My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. A new fashion museum has opened in Amsterdam and it's all about sustainability. It's part of the fabulousness that is fashion for good. Now, I had planned to run my interview with the cradle-to-cradle visionary William McDonough this week, but instead I'm sneaking in this episode with his colleague, Katrin Lay. Because how fabulous is it that we now have not just a one-off exhibition, but a dedicated venue to explore these issues. I wish we had one in Australia. Maybe that's the next stop. But the one in Amsterdam is an interactive space, showcasing innovations like apple leather, biodegradable glitter and blockchain technology. And it's helping to make the fashion industry more transparent. You can find it at, and I don't even know how to pronounce this, but I'm just going to say Roken 102 in Amsterdam. Admission is free and it's open at seven days a week. Katrin Lay is the CEO of Fashion for Good. It's an organisation that was co-founded by William McDonough and set up to bring together the entire fashion ecosystem with incentives, resources and tools for sustainability. At its core is Bill's concept of the five goods. They are good materials, good economy, good energy, good water and good lives. And he says these represent an aspirational framework that we can all use to work towards a world in which we do not simply take, make and waste, but rather take, make, renew and restore. We recorded this interview at the Fashion Summit Hong Kong and we discuss whether conferences do any good, what good looks like when it comes to clothing production and circularity. We talk a lot about innovation, new ideas and disruptors. Fashion for Good runs these uh, incredible programs to support startups and actually our good friends at Good On You, the sustainable shopping app, they just completed one. We also talk about this new age of sharing and helping each other. Because as Katrin says, if we want to change the fashion system, that's what it's going to take. 
Talking of helping each other and all around good vibes, I've been on the first leg of my new book tour for Rise and Resist, How to Change the World. And we started off in Melbourne and it was just phenomenal. I got so much energy from it. I loved it. It was National Op Shop Week here in Australia and there's just so much pre-loved love going on. But more than that, it was about all the people that came to visit me and talk to me and share ideas. So I want to shout out to some of the freaking awesome members of the sustainable fashion community in Australia who came to my launch event hosted by Dumbo Feather magazine or to the round table that we held at Melbourne University Publishing the following day. All of the love to you, my friends, Ethical Clothing Australia, the Australian Fashion Council, Fibre Shed, Buy Nothing New Month, the New Joneses, Claire from Fashion Advocate, Jasmine from Ethical Made Easy, Sophie from Ethical Fashion Australia, uh, who else? There were designers from Amassment, Ahimsa Collective and Corporate, Chloe from Be Kind Coco, Ironic Minimalist, Lady Melbourne, Noble Kind, Style Wilderness and Elizabeth Van Rizendel. Look, and many more, I'm sure I'm missing people out, but the point of this is that I just wanted to thank all of you and to give some recognition to our community because together we are stronger. I'm going to share Insta handles in the show notes to this episode for all of those legends I've just read out so that you can follow them. Sustainability is just not about one ego or one voice. It has to be about all of us united. And I'm so grateful to the people who get behind me. That, my friends, is how you change the world. Catherine, we're at a conference in Hong Kong. The first time I met you was at a conference in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are more and more of these events looking at circularity. Do you think that fashion is changing? Well, I think there's two parts. One is that there's definitely more and more of those conferences and more and more talk about circularity. And um, the fact that we are having this now here in Hong Kong is is fantastic because it brings together the unconnected. It shows some brave pioneering examples. And having this in in Asia, the manufacturing um, hub is important because that's what it takes to change the system. But do we need another conference? I think that's, um, you know, the the big question. There is a lot of talk. Um, We need to make sure there there's lots of people walking the walk afterwards. Yeah. And um, there is one interesting statistic that I like when I when I get this question with regards to how what's the state of the fashion industry. And that refers to some hard facts with the pulse of fashion. And um, it shows that, for instance, year over year, there was quite some progress being made. So I think it's 75% of the companies who've made some improvements towards a better fashion system. But when you look at this overall score... We're still at 38 out of 100. If listeners don't know what the Pulse of Fashion is, can you tell us what that report is? So the the Pulse of Fashion is a report that was done by the Global Fashion Agenda together with the Boston Consulting Group and um, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And it uses the HIG Index, um, which is a aggregation of various indicators on how factories are doing on sustainability, um, social and environmental performance. But it's basically trying to say to companies, you've got to evaluate where you're at and you've got to try to change and make a commitment. Sometimes I feel like those commitments are a bit, you know, everyone's going to do something by 2020 or 2030. And it feels a bit 
are you really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there is a, a lot of commitments, but th I think that's where it starts. You need to have some commitments to go into the right direction and get some programs going, some projects going. But um, in order to really track the progress, that's why I love this, this pulse score, because it really consolidates um, all this talk um, yeah. into a real performance indicators and shows whether we're making progress year over year or not and who's making progress. And You're making progress. We are making progress. We are making progress. And, and we're making... Let's talk about how. Um, so fashion for good. Yeah. What is it? So fashion for good is an innovation platform. That's how we describe it. And um, innovation and collaboration is at the core of what we're about. And, you talk um, about being a convener for change. Yeah, that's one of good the... Phrase. Yeah, it is. But um, how? What do you do? On the one side, we convene to make innovation happen and to scale innovation. And on the other side, we convene to bring visitors into our space to share um, what the state of fashion looks like and also how visitors and consumers can contribute and, and make a difference. So it's convening both on the industry side to bring innovators and corporates together to really scale those solutions. And it's convening on the consumer side to, to educate and to give anybody who visits our space some really practical actions on, on how they can contribute. But you're not a conventional business, you're not making any money. Who's paying for all of this support? So there is so on the one side um, some grant support and the one and only reason why we were able to get started is because the CNA Foundation is, is our founding partner and gave us an initial grant. But it is also now the corporates um, who are part of our platform and that ranges from luxury brands like Keering to sports PVH. brands. Yeah, PVH just joined, which is amazing. Adidas joined. But also Zalando, um, the leading European e-commerce platform, Target, Galerie Lafayette, they're all part of it. So really nice and diverse groups. And, and um, they're also supporting with some partnership fees. But this was William McDonough's baby, right? Yeah, Bill was a huge inspiration um, behind that. And his, um, you know, cradle to cradle philosophy inspired our five goods methodology, a super easy and understandable way of describing what good fashion looks like. Go on then. Um, Well, One, two, three, four, five. Good fashion is, is fashion that not only looks good, but is good really along five important dimensions. And um, that's so understandable even for, you know, people who come in from the street and have no clue about it. And this is about good materials that are safe and healthy. It's about good water, renewable and, and clean, good energy, but also good lives. So the social side of things and a good economy that is really inclusive and shared by all. William McDonough talks about goods mm -hmm. and he makes that kind of connection with goods and services and selling of products and using that word to mean good. But mm -hmm. then he's also talking about values and he's mm -hmm. saying, hang on a minute, how can you be selling goods if in fact they are bad and suck? Exactly, exactly. So that's, you know, the, the five goods really is a philosophy that penetrates all we're doing. It defines how we talk about good fashion. It also defines how we select startups. Mm. We look really at those five good dimensions. When and I've stopped talking about Bill, <laughs> I interviewed him in Copenhagen and I just found him a delicious person. He's a really interesting interview. You have to do, it's like gymnastics, trying to keep up with him. He's just a, he's a fantastic talker. He told me a story about how he met Diana Vreeland in the Met when he first went to New York as a young man. 
what were your impressions of him when you met him? Because you've been with Fashion for Good since July last year as mm-hmm. a CEO. Tell me about your encounter with Bill McDonough. So I first saw Bill on stage and first briefly met him during the launch of Fashion for Good, which was in March um, last year. And he was there on stage um, during the press public launch, um, sharing this philosophy of the the five goods and that we're striving, we need to strive for more goods um, and not just less bads. He's um, a brilliant brain and able to express very complicated topics in just simple, beautiful Mm -hmm. words and with beauty and with wisdom. And that's, you know, why the the five goods are are so important for us. But I just also think that there is a lot of practical things that we got going together. And there's a deep friendship now with Bill and... um, what we just released with the next version after the T-shirts that we did together with with CNA, there is also those jeans, cradle to cradle certified jeans. So yeah. explain this, right? So tell us about cradle to cradle gold certification. What does it mean? How does it work? How are we applying it to fashion? In really simple words, it's the world's most sustainable well T-shirt. It first was, and now it's also a gene. So it's for the biological cycle, really a product that is good along all those five dimensions that I mentioned earlier. Um, Everything was assessed, the materials, the water usage, the energy usage, um, and obviously also the social side of things. We worked together with um, various manufacturers to really get the ingredients um, that are being used from zippers to dyes and, you know, all of this really to the standard of this gold certification. And um, that's a lot of work. (laughs) But what does it mean? So you talk about the five goods, but how does it translate into the T-shirt? So talk me through the case study of the T-shirt, because it actually is about end of life as well as beginning, right? Yeah, it's a T-shirt... Well, we want to say it's a T-shirt to be cherished because you should really keep it. But if you ever want to get rid of it, it is biodegradable and compostable. So it really provides for a loop where the product can enter, um, doesn't end up in waste, um, but can enter a new um, cycle and provide for an, a new life. And the same is true for the for the genes. Everything is um, biodegradable and compostable. Obviously, cotton in theory is biodegradable, but this come it takes it a further step, doesn't it? Because you're looking at that whole idea of not putting bad stuff back into the natural cycle, for example. So you're actually looking at the dyes and the way the cotton's treated as well. Exactly. So it's organic cotton that is being used, for instance, for the T-shirt. We're looking at the yarn that is being used, that this is um, on the one side providing for the performance characteristics, so it doesn't break, but that it's also biodegradable. And that the dyes that are being used are not containing any harmful chemicals, that the water that is being used for the dyeing is, you know, has a closed loop, no wastewater streams that are harmful. So all of those dimensions are are being looked at. Okay, this is a big question. It's about the future of fashion and where you think it's headed. I read a really great story, and we'll share a link, that you wrote for Medium last year about the robot economy. Mm -hmm. It's called How Can the Rise of Automation in Fashion Be a Force for Good? And I found that so interesting because we often think about, if we dare to think about the robot economy, we often freak out and think, well, that has to be bad. You know, what's going to happen with all the job losses? You had a slightly different twist. 
Yes. So I wrote this um, blog in the context of two companies that we admitted to our scaling program, Tamicare and Software Automation. And um, both of them have an automation solution in the context of t software. It's Sobots. Um, it's Sobots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Company from Atlanta. And they're able to produce locally um, on-demand T-shirts with amazing technology, um, machine vision, able to produce t-shirts every three seconds and um the, every three uh, seconds but no garment workers no garment workers yeah but first of all i, I want to make sure that the point of the benefits is clear because what both software and, and tummy care are doing is that they're allowing for on-demand production on a local level and um, that eliminates a lot of waste um, a lot of well overstock that potentially otherwise would get burned, a lot of logistics, um, so and also a lot of waste in the production, um, both from a dying perspective and so forth. Um, so there is huge environmental benefits um, that those solutions provide. Now, on the other side, there is an impact on, on the workers, and we've debated really lengthy and, you know, considered advice and, and input from various parties, um, there's an impact on, on the workers, just like with every industrial revolution that we had so far. So we're talking about the fourth industrial the revolution. The fourth industrial revolution, yes. Um, so, you know, we looked at there is a lot of undignified work happening in the apparel supply chain. If you look at garment workers working on repetitive tasks um, for often very, very long hours with a race to the bottom um, in search for cheap labor everywhere. So isn't there an opportunity for more dignified work, for a more knowledge-based economy that we could transition towards? Now, there is a risk, um, but what we chose is with Fashion for Good to be part of that conversation, um, to actively play a role, because it's not something that should happen to us, this fourth industrial yeah. revolution. And it's also, something that we should shape, and we want to be part of that conversation. That's why um, we decided we want to shape this. It's coming, and yet governments are not, for the most part, certainly not in Australia and certainly not in America, perhaps a little bit more in China, planning for what's going to happen in that transition. And we need to be, it's ridiculous to be closing our eyes to technological advances and saying, never mind, that's someone else's problem. We know the economy is changing. So we need people to get together and figure out what we're going to do, how we're going to put things in place. But what I suppose the question, though, the big question is, what on earth are all those garment workers going to do in the so-called developing world if and when less of them are required to make all these clothes? Well, it's a question that is not only affecting the, the fashion industry, it affects every industry. And I think that's the unique thing about the fourth industrial revolution. It's um, different to these other three revolutions that we had, where in every big change transition time, there was the question, what will be the impact on jobs? And all of a sudden, completely new jobs emerged that nobody would have thought of some 20, 30 years ago that we now would have video bloggers. <laughs> we now would oh, have. Please let us not all be video bloggers. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a huge um, opportunity that is, um, that is arising there. And um, the interesting thing is that really this fourth industrial revolution, it takes all these breakthrough advances in physical, digital, and biological dimension and affects every industry every country in the world every domain and um, and someone has to plan for it or think this could be a solution or this one or yeah. let's try this one 
Yeah. So the educational side is, is crucial. And um, past industrial revolutions usually have led to huge job opportunities in new domains. And that's where our younger generations need to be educated, to be prepared with new skills for those, those demands that jobs require that today we might not even be aware of. Let's talk about disruption and open source and the way that you're approaching putting all this information out there mm. and supporting startups. What you're doing is kind of flipping the way that we approach everything, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not just about how we make stuff. It's also about your, I'm going to use the word business model, even mm -hmm. though it's not a conventional business. There are a couple of dimensions on open. Um, the innovation platform that we have brings corporates, uh, the brands, the big brands and the startups um, together. And that's a really fundamental shift in, in the fashion industry. If you look at how in the past innovation was, was dealt with, it was you know, in the labs, it was in the R&D departments, But in the basement somewhere. It, secret. it was you own all it. secret. The big brand owns it and they keep it close. Absolutely. It was um, proprietary. It was seen as something you wouldn't want to share because it could help you. And I think what people are realizing is that those challenges that the industry is facing are just so big. It requires innovation that is being tackled together, um, looking at open in a way of let's look at what those innovators have in terms of um, amazing solution. Also open in a way that let's do it together. Let's join forces with those other big guys and, and really, really collaborate. And open also in a way that let's share Let's share with, with the public what we've learned. You know, that's, um, for instance, what we do with these good fashion guides and the C2C jeans and T-shirt with CNA. So it's a real fundamental and super amazing shift. Because you want other companies and other brands to be able to pick this up and do it too, right? Exactly, exactly. It makes business sense also, right? Because you're sharing cost, you're sharing risk if you're doing this together. And you can just not change a system towards a circular system by yourself it mm. requires too many players If and um, I think an important word in this in this whole context is this idea of pre-competitive collaboration and having been in the um, footwear and apparel space for you know we well, for Adidas exactly it was something in the that in the past was really unheard of to work together on innovation so if you were listening to this as a smaller designer thinking mm -hmm. I want to get some of that cradle-to-cradle -cradle action. Mm -hmm. Is it prohibitive at this stage for a smaller designer or a medium-sized company to actually get involved in this? Is the tech too expensive? Are the processes too hard to access right now if you're smaller? So the um, learnings from the cradle-to-cradle t-shirt and the jeans, um, we've all published. Um, we've published the bill of material. Um, we've published the suppliers that are providing for this. It's fantastic. So, you know, this is an easily replicatable um, process if you want to work on those rather simple garments. Um, so this library and this material almanac, making this available and, and sharing the learnings, I think any designer can get started with that. If we then look at the innovation side of things, as for instance at the you know startups that we are having in the program with regards to alternative raw materials, alternative dyes, also there um, designers can, can get involved and I encourage also them to get involved, to maybe pilot a small um, solution with one of those innovators. 
Let's talk about those companies because it's the most exciting thing that you do from my perspective because I learned about all these new companies I'd never heard of, particularly around dyeing and innovation on fabrics. Some of them I have heard of. Mm-hmm. We actually worked with an Australian startup called Good On You. Yeah. They're our mates. They're amazing. Yeah. They worked with you on a six-month, I believe it was, accelerator program. Mm-hmm. And what that helped them to do was then reach out into European and US markets. They are Australian-based, but they're now global. It's mm-hmm. a shopping app. It's rad. I'm sure you all know what it is. We'll share some <laughs> links. But tell us about what that looks like. How does it work? So they come to you in Amsterdam? Yeah. What happens? So we are based in Amsterdam, so that's really our, our hub. We have support programs for startups depending on how mature they are. So for the ones that are really early stage, we have an accelerator program. Do you have to apply and win a competition? You have to apply. And um, we screen those startups based on impact, business model, entrepreneur, um, scalability. And um, then it's a three-month program, a cohort with 10 to 15 startups that are being coached on various dimensions, but also meet our corporate partners, meet investors. And they don't have to pay to do it. They just no, have to they, get through, right? Exactly. And they get mentored. They get to make amazing connections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the accelerator program. And then we have a program that's called scaling program that works with the ones that are more mature, that have passed the proof of concept phase. And um, we have a team of dedicated innovation managers, we call it, that really work with those startups or innovators. Um, They are fewer. Um, Now we have nine in the program over a longer period of time, up to 18 months, and really address the roadblocks to scale that those innovators have. It's like Silicon Valley for fashion. I mean, it's interesting because I don't think in the fashion space we've had such a thing. I'm sure if listeners are tuning into this thinking that they've got an amazing tech disruptive idea, this would be gold. I mean, it's not common, right? Yeah. Well, it's also really hard, you know, it's uh, on the one side really sexy and it's it's super cool to meet all those innovators and be inspired. But it's also hard work to scale those um, startups and to connect them with the corporates. If you think of, you know, a startup is likes risk, you know, is, is very disruptive. Our corporate supply chains usually are, you know, very stable. Um, mm. There's risk averseness. So it's also hard work. And that's why we also have this scaling program to really prove that we can bring those solutions not only to a small niche, but really bring that to mainstream and make it big. Um, so that's how those programs work and to your question on what kind of startups yeah, we so have. Who, tell us some stories about who you've worked with. I met a guy who was vice president, I think, of Colour Zen. Yeah. He's actually an Australian. He used to be working for a politician in Tasmania and now is running this amazing company. Those two, David. David. Yeah. yeah. And the company, what they actually do is they treat cotton at the pre-dying stage in order for it to require less water to dye it. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I sort of don't understand it. There's a video. I'll share the video. But I understand the outcome, which yeah. is just a much more efficient, less thirsty process for dyeing cotton, which, as we know, is very thirsty. Yeah. Amazing. Tell us about some other innovators that you've worked with and helped grow. The theory, or the mm. way it works, by the way, Colazen. Yeah, what? I don't, cotton, he did tell me. I was like, Cotton what? and dye naturally repel each other, right? It's a positive and a negative charge. So what they're doing with Colazen, with this pretreatment, they reverse the charge of cotton. He told me this. I was like, so what? like magnets, <laughs> so that they actually do not repel each other anymore, but attract each other, just like magnets. Wow. So cationic treatment, it's called. And um, yeah, that's Colazen. 
And they work with spinners and dye houses to, to really save up to 90% of water. It's amazing. So love those guys. So that's been an innovation that's obviously science-based. It's happened in the lab, but now it's been made applicable to the fashion industry. Yeah. Who else have you worked with in similar ways or different ways? Another one that is um, really fascinating and a, and a wonderful story in the dyeing space is a company called Colorifics. Um, these guys joined the scaling program. It was our batch two, I believe. And when they started, it was basically um, two guys in a, in a lab, in a, in a garage. Scientists. And, Scientists, yeah, and they work with synthetic biology, and what they're in the do- garage when they live just at home <laughs> in a lab, not even in, in a, a lab. real place, <laughs> just in the kitchen cooking up some science. But in Silicon Valley, they would be in the garage, <laughs> and um, they work with synthetic biology. So they're creating engineered microorganisms, and what those microorganisms are doing is that they are able to create, deposit, and fix the pigments directly on the textiles which makes sure that there is no additional chemicals um, being ah, required. Yeah. Water usage is, is being reduced. And um, Stella McCartney has um, worked with them on a dress. And this dress is now on exposition in the V&A Museum in, oh. in London. Is it in Fashion from Nature? Mm-hmm. I've seen it. It's in there. Fantastic. So that's a nice, um, also PRable story and, and yeah. really helped those yeah. those guys, Colorifics, to get a lot of traction. They won an award by the French government. And, Amazing. Um, Where are they so from? From the UK. Ah, oh, brilliant. Yeah. I went to that exhibition and I actually just wrote a story that was in the August issue of Vogue Australia about fabric innovation and future fabrics. And some of these solutions really make your heart sing because we hear so much about the negative aspects yeah. of producing fashion. Yeah. But actually the lab can solve, I'm not going to say solve, but there are really exciting new ways of doing things, whether it's you know leather alternatives or these colour innovations. Mm-hmm. But that's not all you work with. You work with some other stuff that's kind of left of centre. Tell us about the hangers. Yeah, so we work with, uh, we look for innovators really along all the steps in the supply Anything chain. Anything that will make fashion more sustainable. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything. So Norman Hangers, um, that's the name of the company, and they work... What, um, sorry, what's it called? Norman Hangers. And they address the problem of plastic hanger waste, um, which is a huge issue, mostly on the transport side of things, because there's a lot of logistical steps where hangers are being used, not only the hangers that you see in the store, but really warehouse and so forth. And they're working um, with cardboard hangers that are completely recyclable and um, long lasting. We're going to have them in our new museum, in our concept store, also for showcase. And they are being piloted and implemented by various of our partners, so really got some some nice traction. Yeah, but actually, hangers, I worry about them all the time. They snap. If you have plastic hangers in your wardrobe, they snap all the time. You can't recycle them. A black, wrong kind of plastic hanger. What do you do? Well, that's why you should switch to Norman hangers. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned in our new museum, just casually dropping that in. (laughs) Yeah, we have um, in our space in Amsterdam, really in the heart of Amsterdam shopping district. That's how you need to envision it um, with lots of foot traffic. We are um, launching a museum. We had already a launch pad exhibition where people could come in and learn about um, the the state of the fashion industry but now we are really working on the permanent one and that is opening October 2018 and um, we call it the first interactive technology forward museum for sustainable and circular fashion innovation. Fantastic. Yeah 
So um, this is really um, where visitors can learn about the past, the present and the future of fashion. And um, throughout the experience, they can do a good fashion journey. That's how we call it. And they get an RFID-enabled bracelet where they, they can... Are what, what, what? An RFID-enabled bracelet. What is it? So it's a little bracelet made of recycled polyester. And um, with this bracelet, throughout the journey, they can commit to actions. They can learn about issues and how they can contribute, but they can also commit to actions. And um, so that's an interactive, fun, gamified um, dimension. It's badges that they can collect depending on various well, it'd be good dimensions. good for kids, it? would be really good for students. Yeah, it's super cool for mm. kids, but it's also really lovely for adults. And it's sure. very informative. And it allows us also to give some real practical advice and, and tips and stay in touch with visitors afterwards. That's what we learned with our Launchpad experience, that people really are hungry for information about the industry, but they most importantly want to know, what to do. What can I do? So that's what we are... I mean, I do think it would be so good for students, though, because we we know that there's a whole generation that that already want to do this differently. Yeah. And I feel like exhibitions like the V&A exhibition, quite cerebral. I loved it. But that's not necessarily going to connect with everyone who's wondering about where their clothes are made from. Mm. More importantly, how is biodegradable glitter made anyway? Yeah, Biodegradable Glitter, that's um, a company called BioGlitz. They were in our accelerator program and they use an extract from eucalyptus trees. And, well, why are they producing biodegradable glitter? Because they, the founders are glitter freaks, um, but they learned that there is a lot of litter in glitter, if you <laughs> want. So traditional um, glitter is made of, of polyester and polyester releases micro particles, which are obviously very bad for the environment and very harmful. So the bioglitz solution using the extract from eucalyptus trees is biodegradable. And, and that'll um, be in the museum. That, I didn't just mention it because I'm a weirdo. I mentioned <laughs> it because that's the sort of thing that you might learn by going into the museum. Yeah. So all of our innovators, um, 50 plus now that we had both in the Accelerate and the Scaling Program, they will have a place in the museum. And it's... Um, really presented in in a language and with artifacts that everybody can understand, not complex scientific Mm. um, Mm. explanations, but really something that everybody can get and get inspired by and and learn by. So those innovations are being in the museum, but also some small brands, emerging brands that are doing amazing concepts, collections and, and products using alternative dyes or using innovative new materials we're featuring there and people could also shop if they want to oh so that should be retail aspect mm-hmm. to it a small concept mm-hmm. store that's changing every three months with a new theme amsterdam seems like where it's all happening i mean the sustainable apparel coalition is based there right we have a co-working space so there is everybody who is really crucial in in driving change in the fashion industry so that's the sustainable apparel coalition with their european team the ZDHC, which is the Zero Discharge of Hazardous Chemical Foundation, working on really removing chemicals from the fashion industry. We also have the Organic Cotton Accelerator made by all of those organizations are as co-workers in that space. Why is Amsterdam this leader in this space? What, what is it about Amsterdam that makes it a center for this? 
Well, we chose Amsterdam, and I think the same is true for many other organizations, because um, there is a, a wonderful ecosystem already available. Um, there is a, a big commitment to social entrepreneurship. Um, there is a big commitment from the government towards circularity. And it's also really easy for people to come visit from a logistical perspective. And yeah, I think, unless you're in Sydney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's how it how it all comes together, and that's why we chose Amsterdam, and I think many others also, uh, for that reason, chose Amsterdam. Katrin, what about your background? I happen to know that you're very clever indeed. Ofs, you've been to Harvard, you've been to Stanford, you studied sustainability at Stanford, which I I didn't even know such a thing happened. But you went to the John F. Kennedy School of Government. I found that fascinating because I, I've just written a new book about activism, and several mm -hmm. of the people that I wrote about had come there, had been born there, if you mm -hmm. like. Um, Saru Jayaraman, who mm -hmm. is the head of Rock, the Restaurant Workers Association in the US. Interesting. What? Tell us about your background and tell us about being there. It breeds change makers, right? <laughs> it was an executive education, so it wasn't a um, you know, multi-year study. Yeah. It was um, two, three weeks at each of those. It triggered quite some inspiration. It's something that um, is organized through the World Economic Forum. And um, so it's, first of all, an amazing group of people who come together in those courses, really, from all walks of life, from policymakers to um, scientists to yeah, change makers. So I just think it's interesting that there's a school that breeds change makers yeah. in governance. I mean, people often say, how do you change the world? That's one route, right? Yeah. I think, first of all, you need to bring people from different disciplines together, people who really have the ambition to contribute to society, to make a change. I think that's the starting point. And just meeting the group of people and, and spending time 24-7 um, with them is extraordinary and really life-changing. It was life-changing for me. And then from a content perspective, there is a, a, a couple of, um, um, for instance, from Harvard. What did I learn? Um, there was a course by Amy Cuddy. You might know her. No, She's, I don't. Um, she got very famous through a TED talk that she did okay. um, on power posing, and um, you know how men are posing different than women, and how you could prepare, for instance, for a presentation um, with oh, those we'll power it. poses, and therefore really create much more confidence and much more, you know, self-esteem. So a lot of practical tips mm. um, we learned there, but um, there was also a, an element that uh, Bill George and he wrote a book called The True North. Um, yep. He led a course there, which really forced us to think about how we want to create purpose in life and um, where we want to leave a legacy and, and that working in small groups, in, in circles, they call it, um, triggered a lot of thinking on, on my side and how I can contribute more and where I can make a difference. And um, it was quite fundamental to the career choices that I made and where I now ended up. And um, it all came together. <laughs> Were you like a little kid that wanted to change the world? Well, really, when I started off my career, I was pretty clueless. <laughs> I had... No idea what to do. But funny story, I come from the southern part of Germany, which is very much automotive country. And um, at the end of the, the 90s, when I started um, working, I first started with BMW automotive and then realized, you know, interesting, but that's not so much what I love to do. So, you know, that triggered a lot of different steps in my career where I always 
wanted to find something that I love and um, eventually purpose became more and more important. Um, but it was really a trial and error <laughs> to see what I love and, and eventually find something that, that really also has a lot of purpose and a lot of impact at its core. We talk a lot about purpose on this podcast because obviously the people that I interview are driven by purpose. But I do think that we're in a period of time where more and more people are hungering for purpose when it comes to careers and work as well as their, you know, their personal life. But I feel like that business with purpose model is taking off. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I think people just want to make sure that their personal life, their private life and how they spend um, their time at work, that this is at sync. Um, it's no longer this disconnected, I'm a you know, I have a work life and I have a private life. They want to make sure that how they spend those precious hours that they have in their life are just, um, you know, useful to the fullest and um, that they can contribute. And it's all a one dimension. It's all one, your personal ambitions, your professional work, so that all of this comes together. I think it's really interesting how you have been able to push quite... I'm not going to say controversial, but certainly not glossy media and stories around the state of the fashion industry and still partner with big brands and do this work to make change. Like I love how you shared one of my stories, but then when I look at what you're doing on Twitter, on social media, you're not shying away from the gritty reality of what fashion looks like right now. There's a kind of new openness to accepting these stories and not hiding from them, I reckon, in the industry. True. It's an interesting balance that you point out, and we've thought a lot about that in our museum um, from a visitor-facing side. It's important that you share those facts, um, what's wrong with water, with you know material, with waste, but you should not end up in like negativity. You need to always provide for solutions and you need to give some practical actions what also visitors can do. And I think we found this this balance really in a beautiful way with bringing those innovators, shedding a light on them, with giving some really practical um, tips on what people could do. So so it's this this balance. Share the facts, but, you know, provide for some optimism and, and some hope. I also want to add there is another element of what really gives me hope and shows me that there's um, progress. If I see the reaction of people from the street walking into our museum, walking into the Launchpad exhibition, it's this, wow, I did not know and how can I contribute? So there is also a real growing consumer movement of, of people who who want to shop differently, who want to question, who want to ask um, and and take care of their clothes differently. So all of those movements are, are coming together and um, that's what it takes to, to change the system. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. 
you can get in touch there and I really hope you will I'd love to hear from you and you can also find links to my social media and finally if you're enjoying the show please head over to iTunes and subscribe you know what they say first in best dressed subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis so I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion the better Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you Because I love you